Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 39 of The Pick List. Have you had a good week so far? Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week. Thank you. Loved the long Easter weekend. God, that was much needed. I tried my best not to look at any emails uh, for four days, which, uh, yes, was lovely. What have you been up to? Uh, eating my body weight in chocolate has been uh, it's been a bit of an issue but I can deal with that later I think it's <laughs> all right to indulge isn't it over the Easter weekend what's happening work-wise so work-wise quite a bit um I've got a few articles that I'm working on at the moment I'm also preparing for a webinar that I'm hosting for the Gracer really interesting one featuring Little Moons if you remember Little Moons is the mochi ice cream brand that went viral on TikTok a few months ago and they've done a fantastic job converting all of that social media attention into real life sales and they've uh, worked quite hard on their consumer profiling to do that so I'm hosting a webinar that will feature them just take a look behind the scenes of how they did that and spell out some lessons on how to engage audiences on social media what have you been up to um all roads for me still lead to the united nations at the moment so um i'm hosting my first united nations dialogue next week um and a global one which should be fascinating and we've got christine middlemiss the uh, chief veterinary officer of the uk uh, being the keynote for us on that so it'll be interesting to see how that goes and uh, got a, a global meet uh, dialogue planned for next month as well so uh, yeah getting in amongst it that's for sure um we've got a brilliant uh, episode this week haven't we Yes, we have indeed. We're joined by Gaz Booth. Gaz is one of the founders of Holy Moly Dips. And he's just got a fascinating perspective on what's happening in food and drink in the moment. I think he's a really curious guy um, that's just super enthusiastic and super interested in, in how trends are playing out in food and groceries. And of course, as a challenger brand, he's got a really interesting perspective on how smaller brands um, have been navigating the pandemic as well. Should we start the show? Gaz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners what you do and how you're connected to the food industry? Uh, so I'm uh, Gaz Booth. I'm the co-founder of Holy Moly Dips Limited. Uh, we are a business that's been around for about three and a half, four years now. We've gone from a place where we were carrying around polystyrene tub full of samples three and a half years ago to having just sold our four millionth pot of uh, guacamole, believe it or not. And we work with some of the UK's biggest uh, grocers, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Ocado, and deliver a, a range of 100% natural, clean, free from, as good as homemade uh, dips and other products into UK supermarkets and beyond. Fantastic. Now, the last 12 month of, months obviously have been um, extraordinary for anyone in, in grocery, for anyone anywhere, really. Um, so we do always like to quiz our guests on, you know, 
what the past year has been like for you, and particularly as a challenger brand, just give us a sense of what you've seen in terms of changes of, of shopper behaviour and, and how you responded to that. Of, of course, yeah. I mean, like you say, it, it, no one has been untouched by the past 12 months. I myself also have two small children, which means the last 12 months have been even even more uh, of, a, of a challenge, let's say. And it's probably why I, I look like I haven't slept for about 12 months, to be totally <laughs> honest. Um, so, yeah, I think... The key trends that are going on out there, I'm sure every guest you've ever had on who's talked about the last 12 months been talking about the move to online, the, the shift of consumer behaviour. But I actually think there's some really interesting underlying stuff going on below the surface. So we, we're always looking at the kind of uh, flexitarian, the plant-based trends, what's going on in clean eating, what's going on in, in the free-from world. And actually, I found the pandemic has strengthened both the understanding and the appreciation of those kind of key trends, not only amongst our consumers, uh, you know, the end users of our product, but our retailers as well. So it's been a really interesting shift from people who are kind of more aware of what's going into their food at home because they're preparing more of it themselves. People have rediscovered the joy of food creation and with that comes the joy of finding ingredients and looking at products and understanding what they're about. The pick list, of course, is all about highlighting interesting articles from the world of food and drink. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits as well. <laughs> How do you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry? What are some of the uh, publications that you enjoy reading? So... Look, there's there's the obvious publications I'm sure everyone talks about. So from a, a food industry, the grocer we get, you know, we have we have that delivered and we have the online packaging, and and that's a, a fantastic resource. From a, a wider business perspective, I am an avid reader of kind of the, the broadsheets. I you know get the Times and the Financial Times just to understand what's going on. I must admit, I'm a bit of a sucker for social media. I get a, a lot of my interesting articles from people that I admire and uh, uh, kind of inspire, inspire me and influencers. And by reading their LinkedIn, their Twitter feeds, I get so a vast array of interesting information and tidbits from not just the food industry, but business more generally. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have quite a few kind of media uh, sources I suppose but I yeah I'm, I'm horrible for Twitter I spend quite a lot of time on Twitter probably more more than I'd care to admit but things like you know uh, kind of entrepreneur uh, food groups on the on Facebook and the, there's groups out there dedicated to small niche uh, entrepreneur brands and, and there's probably there's one called the food hub which you may or may know about on Facebook the camaraderie on there and, and the problem solving is absolutely fantastic and you know sharing of information sharing of news but also people helping other people, which I, I find very reassuring, especially during COVID times. Yeah, I can imagine. Tell us about your first article that you picked. So I found a, a really interesting story that, that taps into some of those, those trends we talked about. And it was a, it's an article from The Grocer talking about uh, one sector of, of the grocery world and, and how they've responded to the move into online. And that's about how convenience stores have upped their online shopping game. That is the title of the article. Uh, and it's a, just a really interesting piece that demonstrates that retailers of all sizes have had to respond and had to find methods of, of, of tapping into these new trends that actually they had no real control over. This is 
I think I read somewhere, not in this article, I read somewhere that this is, uh, COVID has accelerated the growth of online shopping and, and, and people getting food shopping at home by something like five to 10 years. You know, they were, they were not seeing these levels predicted in the kind of forecast for another five or 10 years. So it's how convenience stores have, have, have moved into that space. And one of the things that I, I really liked about this article and really resonated with me was it? It's, it's just good old-fashioned retailing. It's just good kind of moving with the times, doing what good retailers do is they see an opportunity, they do something about it, and they've, they've gone with it. And, and, and I, I suppose that's the basic kind of entrepreneurism. That's where, you know, obviously where I come from on this. So it's great to see how established businesses now. And I do, I think it's a real cracking example of just good old-fashioned understanding what your customers are demanding of you and fighting and finding your way through a solution which is not always easy you know and, and in the article it talks about the ecosystem that's been created the kind of support mechanisms the the delivery apps the dark kitchens the you know there's this whole ecosystem that sprung out of the ground in response to a customer need and that and that customer need is you know we want to do more online and and if you don't you know change evolve then you'll be left behind. So I think it's a great microcosm, really, of, of everything that's going on in COVID. It was a great article, and I particularly like some of the case studies in there as well. It's talked about a um, premier store in Wharfdale that uh, just uh, done well at marketing. And that basics, as you say, about just good retailing, about telling your customers how the system works, how how much it costs, how it can be dropped off, and, and, and getting that right. And you do think with that proliferation of different apps, that's going to be more and more important, isn't it, for consumers to understand what are the benefits of shopping on one or another and who uses it. Um, my local one-stop uh, shop around the corner, it's really interesting, they're now using Deliveroo and um, the uh, ticketing has on the certain SKUs which is uh, available on Deliveroo. So when you stood in the store, you can think, right, well, if I want that chocolate bar delivered to my house, then actually I can do that next time. So that, that that's fascinating. One thing that always comes to my mind, and it loops back to what you were saying a bit earlier, Gaz, in terms of clean eating and, and, and health trends, I always worry that the convenience piece and speed is, is about chocolate and booze. Do you think, you know, we'll get to a position in the future where it's not and it's more about health? We've chatted about some of those articles in the past. What are you seeing in that space? Yeah, but I mean, I would, I'd go back, actually. I'm going to go, I'm going to challenge you, you here, Or I think there's a moral question about whether it's right to order a dairy milk and expect it to be delivered to your door. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but to totally bluntly, there, there is a, there's a sustainability element, there's an environmental element to this as well. So we can't just put those issues aside simply because it is convenient being convenient. Um, so, you know, it's very interesting. I think you're absolutely right. I think the trend generally is is there and will continue. It's about how how businesses in that space make sure that they let their customers know what they're about still. And it's things like, are you committed to sustainability? Are you committed to environmentalism? How do you demonstrate that in the partnerships that you use? But also, you know, it'd be very brave for a business to turn around and go, do you know what, actually, it's not that great a thing for you to be able to just order a chocolate bar and us deliver it to your door. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, it, there's, a, there's an interesting balance to be had. But you're right. Um, I think more broadly, it, it really is about, they've got to do it. There's no 
I don't think there's any 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 question that they've got to evolve or or, or and thrive or they will literally, you know, these there's been, history is littered with businesses that didn't change and, and move with the times. And actually, I think, as I said before, it's about good old fashioned retailing, spotting an opportunity, doing something about it. But there is a there is a moral and and environmental and ethical side to this that perhaps hasn't been explored. I, I think it's it's a really interesting question though, and I, I thought you know it, it was such an interesting article, partly because you get these fantastic case studies as well about how different retailers have, have adapted to to that. It did make me wonder. And this is sort of not necessarily convenience related, but you know thinking about what it's like being a challenger brand and performing well on e-commerce. Um, what have you seen in terms of product discovery? Because I feel like the the bar has been raised so much to be seen online, to be visible online. To to be shoppable online. How do you make sure you are performing well on those grosser e-commerce sites as a smaller brand? So, uh, look, I mean, I, I would always answer this question, regardless of what you just asked me there, Julia. I will always answer this question by starting with the product, right? Product has to, through what it is and what it does, be different. And, and that's what challenger brands generally do, bring products to market that have something about them that that isn't being served by whether it be own label or, or whatever it, whatever it might be or current current you know options out there. Um, so that's the first thing. It, it does 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 a, the product lend itself to being discovered, you know, because it is different because it it meets certain criteria. And you know, some online retailers have made that really easy. So if I think about Acado, for instance, and their new B Corp aisle, right? So the B Corp aisle, if you're fundamentally committed to that as 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 uh, as a as a way of a shopping choice as a consumer that i will only buy from b corp operations a card have made that incredibly easy you can go on type in b corp there you go big old list whatever it is 300 products that are certified b corp opportunities so they've they've used technology to make that purchasing uh filtering easier and it's it's, it's the same with and, and this is what everyone's doing it's the same with veganism flexitarianism how easy do online retailers make it for people to make informed buying decisions with a simple tick of a box the ones that will will win are the ones that make that as easy as possible now it's an interesting one this because we had a direct-to-consumer operation and and that was the big thing everyone had to have a direct-to-consumer operation god we've got to we've got to get a website that sells to people We've got to get, you know, can we deliver 24 hours? Can we deliver guacamole to Rochdale or wherever it may be? <laughs> uh, and this is serious. We, we sat down and we agonized over it. And actually what we decided was the effort and the money that we were plowing into that, because it, it's expensive, you know, it's, it's not an easy operation to scale. We decided actually we'd be better served simply directing to people where they can buy our products. Waitrose.com, Ocado.com, Tesco.com, Sainsbury's.com not being disrespectful to my own business, they can deliver our products better, cheaper, easier, quicker than I can do it direct to you. Now, there's another layer of that, which is subscriptions and long-term buyer relationships. And, and that's that's definitely a valid argument. But actually we decided our job was to make our products available to as many people as possible through channels that they already used, rather than trying to get them to buy something direct from us um, and we had we had quite a successful direct consumer business, but actually, it serves me better to push those people to wherever they buy their groceries from, and just make sure they buy holy moly as well. Julia, what's your first pick this week? 
My first pick this week is from the Wall Street Journal and it's an article titled The New Shortage, Ketchup Can't Catch Up. Uh, this, as the, uh, the headline suggests, is about a ketchup shortage in the US and specifically it's a shortage in single serve sachets of ketchup. Once again, no surprise, the pandemic and some of the changes in uh, shopper behaviour or consumption behaviour that we've seen um, have a lot to do with what is happening here. So the issue here is basically that table source consumption has changed dramatically since last year. In restaurants in particular, that shift that we saw from sit-down eating to takeaway and delivery plus on top of that concerns around hygiene, have meant there is much, much greater demand for individual sachets of condiments, such as ketchup, as opposed to tabletop bottles. And the price of ketchup sachets, the article says, is up 13% since January 2020. Now, of course, suppliers are ramping up production in response, and Heinz, which is uh, obviously the market leader, is quoted in this piece as saying they're planning to open two new manufacturing lines in April, and they're looking to increase production of ketchup sachets by about 25% to more than 12 billion packets a year. They're also running extra shifts at their plants, and they're cutting back on some varieties to focus on making more single-serve packets. And um, They've also, I thought rather interestingly, invented a no-touch ketchup dispenser to provide a COVID safe alternative to shared bottles that uh, doesn't rely on this sort of single serve format. I thought this article was interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, I love these supply chain stories. I think they're always really interesting and I particularly enjoy these stories when they are about sort of relatively niche product like single serve sachets of ketchup. Um, the second reason, I think the main reason I, I thought this was interesting is because I think it's a reminder that despite all this talk about returning to normal, having vaccination programs roll out and so on and so forth, the aftershocks of COVID are still playing out and some of these weird imbalances in the system are still there. And crucially, this is something that Gaz, you, you've touched on already, you know, some of the changes in shopper behaviour that we've seen will be permanent. Um, and, and so some of these sort of uh, impacts on, on the supply chain, I think, are going to continue to play out for, for some time to come. The other question that's raised for me, was the sustainability and the sort of environmental and sustainable packaging angle here. Because I suppose some of the hygiene concerns that would have driven increased demand in these uh, single serve formats, some of those are going to be fading a little bit. But if we continue to get more food delivered, have you know more, more deliveries in general, then I suppose some of these single serve formats will continue to be really important because you're not going to have a shared bottle if you're getting your uh, your fries delivered via you know any of, of the delivery platforms. And then you know there is that question around uh, sustainability and I guess what suppliers, but also some of these delivery operators can do to come up with more sustainable alternatives. Um, so Gaz, what did you make of this? And did you encounter any interesting, weird supply chain imbalances as a result of COVID? So supply chain is the unspoken, unsexy side of things that just no one, it's a bit like the, the iceberg, you know, everyone sees the tip, but it's the stuff underneath the supply chain is the, other than cash is the most fundamental thing to get right and uh, I, I love this for a couple of reasons I thought a it showed that no one is immune regardless of size like Heinz 74% I think the article of, of, the, of the American ketchup market I mean that's just 
it's incomprehensible how much ketchup Heinz make on a daily basis. The, the, the human brain can't, can't even begin to envision it. So it shows that no one is, is, is immune. And uh, it, from our own perspective, the biggest, uh, two biggest uh, parts of our business were shipping containers, uh, you know, moving product around the globe. Um, there was a, there was a bit of a run on those and they were, they were, they were in short supply and cardboard is the new gold apparently. So there's some interesting stuff going on on, the, on that knock on effect. So I think the things I took away, no one's immune, including Heinz. There's a, a much broader discussion, not for now, but if you want it, is, is about how format is such an important part of a proposition. And it's an un, unsung part of the proposition that getting the format right and the product, of course, is, is, is the winning combination. And I thought, you know, single serve sachets are, are an example of, of a format that's obviously been in demand because of the environmental factors around it. So interesting. And the final thing I thought was very interesting about this is how people have shifted to other brands mm -hmm. because Heinz available. And in my head, I, I, when I first read it, I thought, oh, bloody hell, that's not good. That's not great for Heinz that people are, are branching out and trying. And then I realized, actually, do you know what? Maybe it's a really good thing for Heinz because the grass isn't always greener or redder, you know, whatever, you know, float <laughs> And I thought people might move away and realize that actually Heinz is their preferred go-to brand because of, of, it's a great product and they love it and they've loved it all their lives. So there's an, there was an interesting part of the article where it was about other people trying other stuff. And I thought I'd love to find out whether they stuck with it, you know, later down the line, because I think there's an opportunity there for brands to say, you've tried the rest, now come home to the best, you know? So that was my take. Laura, what did you think? Um, I, do you know what the first thing I thought when I read this article, I thought, I wonder how many of those single serve sachets are kicking around in people's glove boxes. Probably because uh, if you're anything like me, you open your glove box and you've got a sweet chilli sauce, you've got all sorts from uh, the, the, the last drive through you went to, you went to. So maybe is it going to be like the new plastic bags when you used to go shopping and have the old, do you sure you need a plastic bag? It's a, are you sure you need the sauce? Because if you open the glove box, you'll probably find you've got 15 already. Ready. So to that sustainability point, uh, I think that that was a, the selfish thing that jumped to mind for me. <laughs> Brilliant. Are you suggesting we can solve this crisis by rounding up each individual sachet that we've got lying around in our glove boxes and, and, and bits and bobs? I think it's a great idea. You should, start <laughs> amnesty. You should set up the helpline and get out there. We want your some, some sort of amnesty for sure. I think yeah. we'll solve it inst instantly. <laughs> Heinz, you're welcome. I hope you're listening. Uh, <laughs> Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week's from the Retail Gazette, and it's the headline, John Lewis, Ikea, Primark, unveil store opening plans. And this is the long-awaiting um, uh, non-essential retail opening in England on the 12th of April. Uh, and I really like this article because it gives a, a bit of insight about what folks are up to. And unsurprisingly, I never hide it very well what John Lewis are up to because uh, they've, they've had a bit of a torrid time in terms of uh, store closure and, and some, some department stores aren't going to open. So it's interesting to see what they're going to do for the ones that are. So um, it, the article goes through M&S and John Lewis to kick off with. And it talks about fitting rooms and how they will reopen with customer service hosts to manage the fitting rooms, which at first of all, I thought, oh, well, that's going to be an extra cost for the store. But then I thought, remember when I used to do go, go shopping and there was always someone on the fitting room anyway. So I'm wondering that's just a bit of a rebrand exercise. But the 
In terms of returns, I was really interested to see they're still going to quarantine stock for up to 48 hours and have a drop box for returns, which is really interesting and I guess has a challenge again on stock control and inventory for them. Um, still thinking about John Lewis, they've expanded their click and collect service not only across Waitrose, uh, Co-op and Booths, so it gives them a, a 900 store footprint for next day click and collect, which uh, is fascinating. Uh, as we've alluded to, 16 of their stores aren't going to uh, reopen, but the ones that are, um, Exec Director Pippa Wicks is talking about the physical joy of shopping, which I really liked and remember when we used to have that physical joy of shopping a long, long time ago, and how stylish new products are going to be in store, how it needs to be fun, how it needs to be inspiring, and how it needs to be safe. And I think that combination of values is going to be really challenging to execute. How do you make people feel inspired, fun, and then also at a distance too when required? So it's going to be really interesting what, what the put into play. Um, other things to note, Primark are opening for two hours extra per day, at least to kick off with an hour earlier and an hour later to deal with demand and safety. Uh, and then the, the final point in the article that I was keen to get your thoughts on is Poundland. They hibernated 55 stores, but the rest of their estate remained open and they've been a bit of a stalwart of the um, of the pandemic. Whenever I walk down the high street, everything is closed, but Poundland is always open uh, and, and they've done a, a, quite a, a fascinating job of it. Uh, they're still investing to 25 million in transformation plans and the, this financial year alone, they've uh, created 400 extra jobs. And I suppose it's, as we've talked about the, um, on the uh, show before, I guess players like that are becoming more and more important to the food industry, uh, as well as having their own clothing stores as well, uh, Pep and Co. What what do you think, Gaz, and the whole bricks and mortar of non-essential retail coming back? What's it going to mean? What's it going to look like? And how do you square that circle of exciting, inspiring, fun and safe? Is that so, an oxymoron? No, I, I think you're, you've hit the nail on the head and it's a really succinct overview you've given of the article. I take, I'm going to take... I take my business hat off and put my parenting hat on for a second because you know I've got young kids. The reopening of non-essential stores means something to do uh, and freedom, you know, that sense of browsing. Come on, browsing. I mean, who knew that browsing was the most fun thing in the world before they stopped us doing it, right? So um, oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. There's nothing my kids love more than, than having a look around just having a look around the shop they love it and and you know my my wife enjoys it as well and uh, we, it's a nice day out so here's here's the crux of the matter for me bricks and mortar will never die but bricks and mortar has to evolve and has to change and you've touched on some of the things that they're doing in store there so for me it's about ex exper experiential kind of wrap around the bricks and mortar people the one the one kind of thing that bricks and mortar has even though covid's kind of stopping that at the moment is that hands-on try before you buy go and see how things look just stand next to something christ that is 10 times more powerful as a selling mechanism than looking on a screen at, at whether something looks all right you know and i say that as someone who has an amazon deliver here every day right i'm on first name terms with the delivery driver right his name's john he's a lovely bloke um so i think this is pent up aggression almost to get out there and be normal just do a bit of normality so we talked about that shift to online that will stay people love the convenience there's nothing wrong with that but shops will survive bricks and mortar will survive by becoming a, a place of experience and 
combining your a, a way to just lose a couple of hours in a really pleasant way with your friends with your family and those retailers like I mean you're a fan of John Lewis obviously Laura and uh, I am a big fan of John Lewis and in fact I will make a heartfelt appeal to Sharon White right now that Sheffield John Lewis should remain open <laughs> I, am, I am not a not a not one for not taking an opportunity so if she uh, if she's watching this or listening or you know I'm, I'm I'm leading the charge on that one um so yeah that's what I thought about it it was just a I've I, I probably thought beyond just how they're managing COVID and reopening stores into what's the long-term play? How can they make shopping fun and enjoyable? Because it is, that's what shopping is. It's a relief. It's a, it's not, a, it shouldn't be a chore. It should be a, should be a great thing. It's particularly food shopping, right? I mean, who doesn't love walking around the supermarket and just understanding what's going on, looking at all the, different bits and bobs that's going on that that was my thoughts on it which is slightly off on a tangent I understand no I love it and with you saying that I've just got this vision of all these parents letting the kids loose in John Lewis <laughs> toy department and thinking thank god I've got an hour off now and I can <laughs> go for a wander around and look at something else yeah, I, I think you raised such a good point, though, about, um, you know, that excitement about, you know, actually being able to be in a store and seeing the product, touching the product and all of that. I do wonder whether there's always going to be a little bit of sort of danger for some of the traditional bricks and mortar retailers, because I think there will be that sort of bit post immediate post pandemic period where we're all super excited about being allowed to go into a shop again. But that's not going to last. And then I think the ones that are going to make it in the medium term, in the longer term, are the ones that offer a, a fantastic experience and that kind of experiential in-store theatre and, and all the rest of it. I almost wonder whether, yeah, we're going to be so desperate to be allowed to go into any store that it's it's possibly going to give a slightly confusing read on, on what shoppers are going to be looking for longer term. But yeah, cannot wait. So excited to go back into stores other than my local supermarket. <laughs> it's, it's very true. Okay. Gaz, what's your second pick for us? So uh, my second pick is, is is slightly different in that I think it's it's about almost a broader calling of, of business and that's a very grand way of describing this but it's from the Retail Times and it's an article about Aldi who are uh, donating over two hundred fifty thousand meals or, or did donate during the the Easter school holidays. Now clearly there's a political element to this and and we've we've seen in the news I'm sure everyone's seen that the piece with Marcus Rashford and and changing government policy and and whether you are think that's right or wrong or whether how much influence he should have or shouldn't have I think one thing I'd like to say is that this article brought home to me some of the sense of the businesses that are going to thrive and be seen to be doing good and not just for the sake of it are those that are kind of wholly committed to understanding and working with their local communities and, and and wider societal issues. So, you know, I think good businesses are a real force for good. I, I, I truly believe that. And, and, you know, John Lewis is a great example and co-op and, and there's thousands of others, but, you know, and they, and they act in the interests of the world around them. And now, you know, that could be a single issue, like in this case with child hunger and, and kind of, uh, food insecurity and and it's a brilliant thing that Aldi has has took it upon themselves to do that and I'm sure quietly around the country thousands of other businesses are doing the same which is the most encouraging thing about all of this Aldi gets the headline in the retail times but actually out there across the land there's thousands of businesses that are doing really important work in, in their local communities 
you know, and and as I said, that can be from the smallest issue right through to the biggest, you know, things that mankind face. So, you know, Brewdog and their commitment to be net negative carbon, you know, not just zero carbon, not just zero carbon in 29 years time, like I heard one banking group uh, will be this afternoon. Um, net negative carbon as soon as possible, planting a tree for every, you know, pack of punk IPO, whatever it is they sell. I mean, they're, they're a great marketing business, right, Brewdog? But I just love this article because it, it it just gave me a really nice warm feeling about um, the impact that good business can have. That's it. I was fascinated by it. And I think um makes me think about CSR and maybe back in the day, not that long ago, maybe a decade ago, this would be the sort of article you'd be seeing from the co-op or from Waitrose. It wouldn't be from necessarily a discounter. And how much activity like this, as you've alluded to, is business as usual, that this is just expected now to understand what's going on around you in the macro environment and and. Uh, work around it and yeah and to see the re- the discounters at the, the leading edge arguably with smaller H- HQ teams as we know and work on uh, on a lot tighter margins to be dealing with this and it puts the pressure on others that maybe maybe aren't. Yeah it really made me think of some of the findings from the recent Edelman Trust Barometer. So Edelman does this um, annual survey on consumer trust and credibility and they look at how uh, consumers in a whole a wide range of countries including the UK um, how much trust they have in various institutions government and all the rest of it and it was fascinating to look at what happened to trust in business um, in, in the wake of Covid and what they found was that actually Trust in all institutions was eroded by the events of 2020, not just because of COVID, but obviously also um, so much around sort of systemic racism that that we we saw as well. And business, as a result, is now the most trusted institution. So there's a real desire also among consumers to say, you know, we've lost some of the trust um, we used to have in more traditional institutions, and we are expecting business to, to step up and fill some of that gap. And Gaz, what you were saying about the local angle there, that was also something that they really pulled out, you know, this idea that trust is local. It's not necessarily about the big kind of corporate announcement. It's what can I see locally happening in my store in this business that uh, that I know on the high street. So yeah, I think it's really interesting. And I would expect that we're going to see lots more food businesses of all size really try and figure out how they can how they can play into that. Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from Quartz and it's called Weight Loss App Noom was ready for its pandemic moment. I picked this article largely because of the coverage we've seen recently around the government's health and obesity drive, including the news that Chris Whitty is going to be heading up the new office for health promotion. So I think there's a lot of attention being paid to what's going to happen around health and wellness and obesity later um, in the year. And what I think is interesting about Noom in this context is that it's an app that uses behavioral science to help people make better choices around food. Um, It's uh, sort of got an international presence, got a UK side to its business as well. And part of that is about weight loss, of course, but it's I think generally much more about balance and wellness and self-care than a sort of traditional calorie counting app that you might uh, that you might get. Um, and it basically uses a mixture of artificial intelligence and human coaches to help people achieve their 
food goals, if you will. Um, so this article really sort of explores some of the opportunity that an app like Noom has around COVID and the fact that people are looking to shed some of their lockdown pounds uh, post-pandemic. Um, it goes into the background of how the app was founded, the funding they've raised so far, which is quite significant, um, how it's being marketed, etc., etc. What really struck me, though, is that, you know, you have a company here from outside the food industry. This is a tech company that becomes the primary interface between consumers and the products they buy. You know, Noom operates on a traffic light system of its own where um, it basically groups foods into green, amber and red categories and then provides guidance and encouragement to consumers around how much of these categories they should eat in a day. Um, so it really inserts itself in between the consumer and the products they buy and it interprets the products and how good they are for them on their behalf you know so forget about what is unpacked forget about what any government initiative potentially has to say about what you should eat you know here you have this app guiding consumer uh, choices and I suppose you could say, well, that's not that new because, you know, organizations like Slimming World and Weight Watchers and even apps like MyFitnessPal, any diet essentially has has inserted itself in between consumers and, and their, their food choices for a long time and is sort of choice edited. But I think it's always worth paying attention to any new player that's gaining traction and that's sort of potentially shaping the way consumers make choices. And it also strikes me as a much more sophisticated approach, a more holistic approach, looking at that sort of behavioural science side of things, and therefore it's potentially more, more impactful. Um, Noom is also looking at pursuing some B2B opportunities, so including offering their technology um, on a white label basis. So I think it'll be really interesting to see whether we're going to start seeing retailers, uh, potentially some feed companies, but I, I would expect the primarily to be retailers, you know, offering a service like this as, um, as, as part of their um, portfolio as well. The other thing that really struck me about this was that um, how different the language and the approach used by Noom is to what we're hearing about food and weight and wellness from much of the food industry. You know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I still feel like so much of the food industry is sort of vaguely stuck in the 90s when it talks about food and weight and calories and, and all the rest of it. And I think apps or companies like Noom show that consumers have really moved on from that. And, you know, it's m about much more sort of positive and inclusive language and a more positive um, approach to food rather than the sort of sense of, you know, how many calories are in there and is this a good food or a bad food. Um, so I think it's just an, an interesting example of where I think as a the food industry, and particularly some of the, the big sort of more traditional companies, probably need to be quite careful that they are not going to end up looking really out of step with what consumers are looking for from a wellness uh, point of view. Um, and Gaz, I was really interested in your, your take on this because... Your brand, you know, I think has has that, you know, it, wellness and, and, and sort of uh, positive, um, quite playful component to it as well. What are you seeing in terms of what consumers want in terms of sort of positive feed choices? And what do you make of an app like Noom? It's a very interesting. And I, 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 I think you're right. I think it's more important 
and and actually the pivotal thing is how Noom shapes something like a retailer's offering. You can almost see if it, if it does go huge, that almost a retailer would would have a meal a new meal deal. You know, where you could pick out the bits and it would be green and you know I can I can see that. I mean, Weight Watchers did that obviously, and but they they solved the way, they solved the retailer problem by simply introducing products. Whereas if a retailer decided that actually the way that they shape their products and, and how they align them and what and, and the values that they're looking at when they do that. And actually we'll come on to that, I think, in a little while, because there's a very interesting article that I know uh, that Laura's going to talk about next and we'll come back to it. So yes, you're right. Um, my health and well-being is obviously a, a key element of what's going on in the market. But we also shouldn't ignore the fact that actually one of the key areas of growth at the moment is kind of indulgence as well. Um, so there's this this dichotomy at you know play. People are pent up and have pent up kind of needs, and sometimes that is a dairy milk delivered at one a.m. by a convenience <laughs> store unethically and in, unsustainably. Uh, <laughs> uh, but in general, health and wellness is obviously not going to go away. And I actually don't think the fundamentals have changed. People want to feel like they're doing good and putting good things into their body. And actually, most of the time, they just need a little help in formalizing that and shaping it. Now, whether that's through Weight Watchers once upon a time, Slimming World, and, and, and that was a very specific aim was to lose weight, eat well. Um, but actually, this has never been a, this is ne this has never not been an issue where people, the masses, want to do good and eat well and 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 feel like they're they're doing that through the products they put into their bodies. And actually. I think it's it's actually incumbent upon all companies, small, large, to tell the story of how they help that. The, one of the bits in the article I was really interested by was gamification. And the fact is, as you said, that this is a more modern tone of voice. And when you look at the more traditional players in the market, and we've seen Weight Watchers go through a, a big rebrand as WW and Oprah get even more heavily involved and James Corden taking on the mantle to be their US ambassador. But it's that same old um, influencer behaviour, whereas Noom's gone down a different route and gone... A, back to what do the consumers want, what works, and I don't know, dealing with an individual, and that's a Hollywood star, and they've probably got a chef and a, and a PT looking after them, and what can I do to cook for my tea? So, yeah, it's a fascinating read. Laura, tell us about your second pick for us. Uh, my second pick this week is from The Grocer, and it's uh, the headline, Tesco links with Simply Cook for Let's Cook in-store meal kits. Um, and this really caught my eye. It's a recipe box service, uh, Simply Cook, uh, is launched in store this week, uh, and it's across the 1300 Express Tesco stores. And as, as the headline says, it'll feature in a Let's Cook um, branded uh, gondola aisle setting. Um, basically, it's a meal for two for six pounds, so it allows you to pick a protein or a pro protein alternative, veg, carb, uh, along with the uh, Simply Cook ingredients. And I had a little look on their website, really, because I wanted to understand what, exactly what it was, because I've never bought this before. Um, and because I was going to describe it as herbs and spices, but the, the first headline on the website is, we're more than herbs and spices. <laughs> so... <laughs> I thought that's not the best way to describe it then. So, but it, it's generally flavouring and mixed um, herbs and spices, things like jerk chicken and other flavours. It's come out of the, the Tesco incubator um, initiative uh, and it's really focusing on these 20 minute meals. And I think it's it, that as well, I think not only the, the meal kit, which I, I want to pick your brains on, but also back to the 20 minute meals piece that 
this is probably Tesco getting ramped up again that we're hopefully, and I know the government are pushing quite hard to get us back into the office even a couple of days a week. So, you know, you're juggling your time when maybe you could have had longer cooking if you're working from home all day to back to what can I make in 20 meals to feed my family and something that is a, is a decent mix of, of here carbs, um, veg and protein and tastes good. And the other point within it is how do you get restaurant quality at home? And they're trying to emulate this with some of these uh, products. But I guess in the back of my mind, do I want restaurant products at home? Yes, it would be lovely, but I would rather go to a restaurant. So it's probably maybe trying to get that midweek where you maybe haven't got the time, but you, you want something extra and countering the, the gusto and the HelloFresh that we've seen do so well. What do you think, Gaz? I'd like to think that this is the first sign of a, of a, a retailer doing a really smart thing but time will tell right so you you said the key words at the end there which was the gusto hello fresh mindful chef meal occasion you know it's going to be balanced you know it's going to be quick because you can select quick options if you don't want it to be quick and you want it to be premium you can select that they have made choosing meals selecting stuff and a, a joyous experience actually because again me and my wife are both hello fresh angus do we sit down at the start of the week and we say oh do you know what however i suppose the key here is again about adding value back to the grocery experience and that in-store shopping experience and my 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 kind of key takeout here is and the key question i would be asking myself if i if i was you know at one of the top grocers would be how do i make sure I'm not just an ingredients warehouse. This genuinely, how, how, do, how do I stop myself not just being a place where people pick up ingredients? Because that, that's great. That's how we've shopped for, you know, since the first grocer opened. Uh, you know, you are an ingredients warehouse. You go in, you pick your bits, right? You might have that for that, da, 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 da. How can we make that easier? How can we add value to our own proposition by making that easier? Making it more convenient for our customers to come in and go, do you know what? I do fancy. And Tesco tried this with their love stories, but they did it. Uh, they did it as a, a push marketing kind of look at this great dinner. Doesn't it look fantastic? They didn't. Uh, it, I, I love Tesco, but they didn't execute it brilliantly in store where people went in and kind of experienced it and, 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 and could just get it. And it was easy. And, and there was a range of meals on offer. And maybe even if they did something like front of store, here's five meals this week that you can pick all the ingredients up or go no further. We've done your shopping for you. It's here. And, and it is, it's that, how do they, how do they not just become an ingredients warehouse? How do they add value to their own proposition? I think you raise such a good point though, because I think um, it is about meals. But I think it's that point about, yeah, I want to buy into a meal. And I, I think this initiative, this rollout that Tesco are doing is, is really interesting because to me, it has the potential to bridge that gap between uh, something like a Gusto or HelloFresh um, and a, a ready meal. You know, that sense that we have seen an increase in, in scratch cooking during the pandemic. There will be lots of people who are looking for um, something that isn't a ready meal. So this idea that, you know, I walk into a supermarket and someone is offering me a meal, well, that used to be the ready meal, but that's not what I want because I want to feel like I'm doing more cooking. But I also perhaps haven't done much planning. And I think the fact that they're doing this in Tesco Express 
stores, I think is the key here. It's that idea that you're walking in there and you're looking for that meal for tonight. And here you have this sort of modular approach where you go, oh, I'm going to combine this and someone else has kind of done the thinking for me. And I walk away with a meal that someone else has planned for me, but I still get to feel like I'm doing some scratch cooking. I think that's, to me, that, that to me feels like that's the sort of um, itch that they're they're trying to scratch. So I'll be really really interested to see how they're um, how how they're how they're doing with this, and whether we're going to see some other retailers sort of think about uh, similar lines as well. Gaz, it's been so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.